A quick fact before we get into today's episode. There are less than 10,000 bilbies left in Australia. 10,000? I had no idea it was so few. Which is why I'll be buying a bright pink Daryl Lee milk chocolate bilby this Easter. The good folks at Daryl Lee will again donate 20 cents from every deliciously smooth and creamy milk chocolate bilby sold to the Save the Bilby Fund. So do your bit and buy a Daryl Lee bilby for mum. Buy one for the kids. Buy one for your Uncle Steve and help this cute and very important Australian animal survive for decades more. You can't miss them. Just look for the bright pink Daryl Lee Bilby and Woolworth stores right across Australia, which is where I hope we see many more Bilbies in years to come. Daryl Lee makes it better. This is The Five of My Life with me, Nigel Marsh. The series where I talk to notable people about five of their defining things. The way it works is my guests always choose a favourite film, book, song, place and possession. They tell me their choices in advance so I can research them, but they don't tell me why they've chosen them. That's the subject of our conversation. The reason I devised this series is I wanted to create a slightly different way to gain an insight into the real lives and thoughts of prominent people. John Eales is one of Australia's greatest sporting heroes. He is the country's most successful rugby captain and the highest scoring forward of any country in Test history. Not only did he win the World Cup on two occasions, he also has the distinction of having captained the Wallabies to more wins than losses against the All Blacks. Since hanging up his boots in 2001, John has forged a highly successful business career, founding two companies and authoring two books, alongside a multitude of director, journalist, consultant and ambassador roles. Now, so your uh, film, you have chosen the comedy classic Blades of Glory. Tell me about it. Well, uh, look, I love comedies. Uh, I love, um, and I, I think particularly when they, they've, they've got that element of real life about them, but yep. they're, they're sort of extended beyond the, the realms of, of possibilities, which makes them funny. Yep. And, uh, and that movie, Blades of Glory, is hilarious. Like Will Ferrell is a very funny man. And, and the other actors in the movie. It's one of those ones that just as a family, our kids have probably watched it before they should have watched it from right, an age yeah, perspective. Right, yeah, I get that, yeah. Um, and there's a couple of times you sort of cringe a little bit. But, uh, but no, it is a very, very clever and, and funny film. So the first 10 minutes of that film are as close to comedic perfection as you can get. And some of the lines where it's the... Um, so I forget the name that Will Ferrell is playing, but he is so on the edge of committing. Where he is, is, is the tsunami of swagger. He is the sex tornado. Yeah. He hits the ice like a sack of plastic Euro porn. You go, this is, this is sensational stuff. Yeah. And, and the music is um, a time to say goodbye. Yeah. So, so you add all that in, and the first 10 minutes, you're, you're sort of almost you're pinned to the back of the sofa thinking this is hilarious. I mean, I'm not sure it can sustain it the whole way through, but, uh, you know, wonderful. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a you know, typical story. The, there's a hero, there's a villain, and, and the same person is both at, at different stages, Will Ferrell, and, and others, others in the plot. It's a far-fetched plot, but it involves sport. You know, it's one of those, uh, th- those movies that, you know, just... Yeah, it's it's the the absurdity of it. Like growing yeah. up, I loved Monty Python. Right. Yeah, the absurdity of yeah. Monty Python. Um, but but there's something really clever about it, and it was the lines, it was the 
um, and that rags to riches story yeah, all going yeah, yeah. with it. Now, your your book, we're, we're changing from comedy and we're going to semi-autobiographical non-fiction. Is Liar's Poker by Michael Lewis. Just so I remember reading that the month it came out. I was living in London. Uh, you know, I wasn't actually working in the city as in finance, but I knew lots of people that were. And that uh, one of my sort of life changing books. Uh, I think it's uh, it's one of those books. I love that genre, yep. uh, which is you know telling a, a great story, a real life story, but almost in a in a fictional way, like in yeah. a fictional style. Like it's like a really following just a story. Yeah, and. Um, and it was written by a credible insider, yep, um, Michael Lewis, who had spent time in the financial markets. So you got a real insider's view, and particularly Lois Poker, he, he had worked in financial markets through that era. And I've always had an interest in in finance and what makes it tick. And and he just gave a great insight into you know re- really the you know, so one of the crises in in financial markets. So why it happened and uh, and all of that. It was recommended to me and probably not right when it came out, but I was talking to someone and saying, look, I like that genre. And they said, well, you've got to read, yeah. you've got to read Lies Poker. So, and so I read that and I think I've read all his books since then. So, so he, he did Moneyball and The Big Short, didn't he? Yeah, and yeah, he did. And uh, Flash Boys and, um, and a number of other ones as well. So it's a talent, a bit like um, Malcolm Gladwell, where you can take a subject that, that it, Potentially, if you and I wrote about it, it would be boring as all batshit. But they, yeah. and it's something that actually you wrote in. Uh, I read both your books again over the weekend, the Learning from Legends, um, uh, which uh, was you said knowledge through entertainment. Now yeah. that that is a real a part of what we're trying to do on this show. But so that's a real skill if you can take something and you go like the Big Short, the film. You know, I'm watching this and I'm enjoying it, but also yeah. I'm a- I'm actually sort of learning stuff. Yeah, I, I really value the ability for someone, and I suppose it was having having a father who was an educator. He was yep. a, a school teacher and a school principal, and he always, I mean, and teachers always teach, and whether you want them to or not, they're always teaching. And Dad was at his best or worst sometimes when when he had us in the car in a yep. contained space, and and he was teaching. But but I think that yeah, great teachers have this ability to edu- entertain you as they're educating you. Sure. And and so for me, when I've written, that's always been my mantra. I'm not sure if I always uh, achieve it, but it's always been the goal. And also when when speaking, yeah. um, you, you need to be able to grab people to, to get hooks that are that are really interesting. And and Michael Lewis and Malcolm Gladwell do that so well. Yeah. Yeah, they just are able to take you deep down. And I, and I think there's... Some people, when they write and tell a story, they're, they're telling a lot of the surface of a story, but they have the ability to dive deep and then go deeper and then go deeper to give those really particular insights to, and, and sometimes they're human insights, sometimes they might be financial insights or business insights, whatever, whatever they may be, but they're the real eye openers and say, oh, wow, that's, I get it. Yeah. I, I like the way, um, you've seen the film Big Short. Uh, yeah, I have. Uh, so I, I like when they, they'd also... Uh, they're not afraid to show their underwear, if you, if you know what I mean. So, so when they're explaining a, a quite a complex financial thing, they go, and here's Margot Robbie in a bath. Yeah, because yeah, because yeah. We, we know your minds have sort of switched off, so Margot Robbie is going to be in a bath, and she'll tell you. And you go, okay, that's, that's fair enough. You're, you're showing me what you're doing, but yeah. you, you have got my attention. And it was a very unusual part that Steve Carell played for, for yes, him. Yes, yeah. Like, like a, a much more serious. That's and, right. Uh, but it, it, was, it, was a, like, it was a really good story, that one. So I am. Um, is, is it learning from legends or? Yeah, yeah. So I read the um, 
the business one second, which uh, weirdly I liked better than the sport. I mean, I liked, I liked them both, mm. but, but just quite, you know, intriguing. Yeah, well, I liked it better too. And, right, okay. Uh, yeah, I wrote them both and wrote the sports one first and then the business one. And uh, really for me, interviewing a lot of the sporting leaders uh, uh, was in some ways, like they all had great stories and, and I loved doing it. But in some ways it was almost looking back over a career that I had had. Yeah. And so it was like, well, there's a lot of different ways to tell a similar story. Yes. And whereas when I was doing the business one, I was really just starting out in the formative stages of starting in, in business. Like mm. I'd always done a little bit in business, but but I was starting to get a lot more involved and starting to really unearth what I didn't know. Yes. And and they say, I, I think in the progression of learning, you know, one of the big steps is to know what you don't know. Yeah. And that's that's a really important step in learning and, and you're starting to realise, oh, I don't know this, I don't know that, I don't know that. So when I was in the process of writing the business book and interviewing the you know, 30, 35 business leaders that I interviewed, um, I was able to ask them questions which gave me insight sure. into the things I didn't know. Yeah. So it was really learning on the run. I, I really you free tuition. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I, I felt it was a bit like almost doing an MBA on the run because it's writing is a – and you know yourself, like it's a, it's a really an individual pursuit and it takes discipline and time and particularly when you're fitting it in amongst all the other things that you're doing. Uh, so for me, I wanted to make it doubly useful. I, I always wanted to write a book and, and I thought, well, I'm going to write a book that's going to be really useful. I, yeah. it's gonna, I suppose to put it simply, I followed my curiosity. Yes. And some of the curiosity was solving problems that I had at that particular time as well. Well, it's so, so that book, I mean, I, I loved them both, but I actually sort of refer back to that book. And, and the line in it, that, and I'm not just saying this to blow smoke up your ass, the line in it that I like the best, which I, I you know, remember on, I'd say, at least six times a year, is from the introduction. You say, an Irish mate said to you, and you were about to retire, which is bloody wonderful life learning, which is always remember to love what you do, not what you did. And you go, Wow. That, I mean, that's pretty. Yeah. I mean, I think for your your life shows that you 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 haven't. My version of that is I don't want the second half of my life to be a lame imitation of the mm. first half, and and you know, so so you to build a business career. I mean, people you know they know who you are, they recognise you, but you can't go on you know all the time about that amazing kick or whatever because you go, <laughs> well, mate, that was fifteen years ago, and we love you, but could you pay the mortgage? And you go, yeah, yeah, yeah. and how are you going to do that? Yeah. Yeah, look, it was, and I actually very fortuitously, and I, I suppose I've been in, in some respects like a bit of a bowbird of uh, interesting things and 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 lessons, and that's probably Dad's influence. Uh, you know, w- w- always looking to be educated in some sense. Um, and it was early in my career, and I was in a cab in in Dublin, and the guy recognised me. He said, "Oh, look, mate," he said that line: "You got to love what you do, not what you did." Isn't that fabulous? And, and for me, it just captured it for me. Life is about what you're doing now and, and where it's going to lead you in the future, not about the rearview mirror. Yes, right. Oh, so, but you can be, I mean, what's was that wonderful phrase where, where, where let, don't let your past dictate you, but let it be a very important part of who you mm. are, but don't mm. let it dictate you. And so yeah. that's fine. Wow. So your song is still in the States. We're going back to the 70s, to 1970. It is Bridge Over Troubled Water, mm. written by Paul Simon, but sung by Art Garfunkel, one of the most covered songs of all time, done by 50 different artists, including right. Elvis Presley. Uh, tell me why you have chosen that. I think it was a period of my life, you know, a lot of my mates down at Brothers Rugby Club, you know, yep. some of them, and there was a, a guy by the name of Rupert McCall, so Jason 
Jason McCall is his proper name, but everyone knows him as Rupert and he's a poet and he's you know, quite a genius. He was he was doing um he was a lawyer by trade, but was writing a lot of poems. And we used to you know, trade a lot of music. And I remember being at the World Cup in nineteen ninety one and in those days you know, there's no such thing as you know, sending things via email or, or anything like that. Uh, what arrived over at the World Cup in where we were staying was this cassette. And it was uh, you know, copying of a whole lot of different songs. Yeah. He said, here's something to listen to while you're over there, you know, through the World Cup. And on there was a lot of, uh, you know, that genre. It was the Simon and Garfunkel genre, but it was a lot of other ones and some I'd heard and a lot that I hadn't have, hadn't heard. But it was in my Walkman as we listened to in those days and and Bridge Over Troubled Water was one of those songs. I remember listening to these songs on the way to the ground. And, and some some songs, it doesn't really matter what's uh, what they say, but it's it's the way they build, and yes. that's a great song. I mean, a lot of people might think, well, better off listening to ACDC on the way to a, a, <laughs> a, a game. But for me, often it was those more introspective songs, and uh, Bridge Over Troubled Water was one I loved listening to on the yeah. way to a game because I found that you know, that, that crescendo it built to was you know, motivating. Wow. Talk about how it builds. There's a, there's a couple of lines in the last verse where it says... Uh, your time has come to shine, all your dreams are on their way. Mm. And you go, uh, in the context of the song and how it's been building, it just, yeah. I, I hadn't, and, until I went to read them knowing I was going to chat to you, I hadn't actually read the lyrics properly. I've always yeah. liked the song, but you go, well, it's actually incredibly insightful. And Well, it is, and it's, and it's also this journey of bringing someone along with you and this person who's saying, I'm going to look out for you, I'm going to be there for you, I'm going to take you along, and you're going to be better because I'm there. So it's, uh, you know, but... Yeah, your time has come to shine. What what a, what a wonderful, yeah, wonderful uh, lyric, and uh, and, and you, you can just imagine a whole lot of things. It could be a father talking to their son, a, a, you know, a guy talking to his future wife, whatever, or, or a wife talking to her husband. It, it doesn't yeah. matter. You can you can imagine it any way you like, but it is beautiful and it's powerful. Have you seen the Elvis cover? Oh, I haven't seen it, but but I have heard I have heard astonishing. Him sing it. So again, doing research for this, mm. I, I you know they said it's one of the best covers, so I went look at it, looked at it, and I mean I sort of was prejudiced against it before I watched it. And you thought he nailed it, and there's a mm. there's a story that Paul Simon went to see Elvis because he, he put it in all his concerts, including the very last one that he did. Because so he he loved the song like you love the song, mm. Elvis, right? And Paul Simon went to see him. I think it was in '71, and his quote afterwards was, "That's it." We might as well all give up, isn't that great? You go, he's done it better than I, you know, than than, than I do it. Type yeah. Thing. So yeah, but to, have your work copied by you know Aretha Franklin, Elvis Presley. You go, you know that you've you've written something that will last forever. You know, yeah. in, in fifty years' time, people will still be listening to Bridge Over Troubled Water. Well, I have heard the story that uh, there's long similar lines, and there was uh, the Nine Inch Nails song "Hurt," right, and which was covered by Johnny Cash. Who, I mean, you got to love Johnny Cash's voice and his power, and uh, the, the name of the lead singer escapes me, but the, the guy from Nine Inch Nails uh, said to, after he heard Johnny Cash sing, he said, that's no longer our song. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that is, that is his song. And he is unbelievable doing that song. And I think music's always been really important for me. As, like, I can't do it. Uh, you know, I can't sing, but I you know, sing at home and pester everyone. Um, but, uh, but I've always loved it and, and loved a great lyric and... People who can put you know a tune and a lyric together, I, I have great respect for. This is the five of my life. More in a moment with John Eels. 
This is The Five of My Life with Nigel Marsh. So your place, I, uh, I can't wait to hear about this because you've chosen Jean-Pierre Reeves' restaurant in Paris. Now, Jean-Pierre Reeves, uh, you, you wouldn't have known this, but he is one of my heroes. Uh, I, I mean, that, that was my sort of era, what was it, 75 to 84, where mm. he would be playing, the, the Asterix or whatever he would be called, the, the, yeah. the golden helmet or whatever they called him, the blonde destroyer. Yeah. Um, uh, and he, a bit like what we were talking about, about love what you do, not what you did, um, I mean, he is a cult figure in Paris, and, and rightly so, because he's got two halves of his life, each of which would do for most men to be their entire legacy. You go, I was a very, very famous uh, rugby player, like you, one of the few men that's walking this earth that's captained his nation to a victory over the All Blacks on New Zealand soil. That will sort of do. Um, <laughs> or I am a world-famous sculptor. And you go, but it's the same bloke. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so, so you've chosen his restaurant in Paris as your favourite place. Uh, tell me about it. Yeah, look, I, um, I mean, gee, it's hard to pick a favourite place, isn't yeah. it? Because there's so many. But I, I, I chose that because I do love, you know, food and wine. And and Jean-Pierre doesn't drink, but he had some good wine in his restaurant. But and I, I don't think it's he has that restaurant any longer. Right. But it was... Uh, yeah, it was a place we – I got to know him over the years. So I remember sitting at home one time. It was after the 95 World Cup in South Africa, which was a disappointing result for us. We got knocked out in the quarterfinals. I was back home and playing just local, you know, for club, for brothers, you know, through, you know, the rest of the season. And um, I get a call at home one night and he says, oh, John, it's Jean-Pierre Reeves here. And I say, oh, yeah, rubbish. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Who is this? And he said, no, no, it is. It's Jean-Pierre Reeves. And uh, – so I thought, oh wow, and um, and then he he invited me to come and play for the French Barbarians, and right. I was like, you, I, I love watching Jean Pierre Reeves as a kid, and Sunday nights I used to have World of Rugby, or yeah, you watch some of the Five Nations highlights and things like that. So, and that was always you know great, and you, you'd love watching the the, the games, and Jean Pierre Reeves was someone who grabbed my attention through those years, and then having him on the phone, then going over and meeting him and staying at his place before we went down to Toulon and played the All Blacks uh, for the French Barbarians. And when you get welcomed into the French Barbarians, it's like a club for life. It's not right. just a one-off game. And they're, they're such a great group of people. It's a great fraternity. And really, like I was very fortunate to have a lot of great experiences in, in rugby. That is right up there with the top. Not necessarily playing the game, right. but just being involved with that fraternity of the French Barbarians. And... And one time when, when I was over there, you know, Jean-Pierre said, oh, look, come and have, have dinner at our restaurant. And uh, so we went there um, and went there a number of times over the years. And look, the food was fantastic, but it was more the company. And I, and I suppose, as I said earlier, it is more about that, you know, there's no time greater than when you're with family and friends and, and you're able to enjoy great wine with great food. Yeah. I think if you can, if you can enjoy that, uh, and they don't have to be expensive wine or, or food either, but it's just, uh, you know, the great food, wine and company, life doesn't get much better. Yeah, breaking bread with another human soul and talking, mm. that's what it's sort of a, about. Do you own a Jean-Pierre Reeve sculpture? Uh, I actually do. Ah, you bastard, really? <laughs> is, is it one of those big ones or...? Uh, it's, it's big enough. It'd be a hard one to So in, uh, in the garden steal. or in the house? It's in the garden. Fantastic. Yeah. And, and did he give it to you or did you purchase it? No, look, he, he did because he did a, um, an exhibition in Sydney right. and he, he invited me to, to open it, which yeah. was a great honour. Like, you can imagine, like as a kid, you just yeah. you don't think you're going to meet these people, let alone, 
end up in some form being their peers. And I say that with a great deal of modesty and yep. some reservation. Um, and uh, being invited to open that that thing. And then he, he said, look, I want you to have one of the sculptures. And, uh, and you know, we chose one and have it, have it in the house. It's not an easy thing to move around. It'll no. Be, is, is it raw iron bent into shape? Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. it is. Like almost like these sleepers that are... You know, bent and it's you know it's really great. And there, there was a moment with John Pierre Reeves. It's interesting. And I, I used to have a yeah you know, my own uh, routine before every test match. And this one was the work. And and when we sang the national anthem, I'd always pick a face in the crowd and right. I'd, I'd pick an Australian. And you'd see an Australian jersey or someone supporting Australia might have a scarf on, and they would never know it. But I would sing the anthem with them because right. for me, what really one of the things that lit my fire as far as rugby was concerned was seeing the Australian team sing the national anthem before a test and thinking yep. how good would it be to be out there in the jersey about to play a test yeah. you know, sing the national anthem. And uh, so it, it's developed this routine for myself where, where before a test match I'd pick this face in the crowd and I'd pretend I was – I'd imagine myself in their shoes, how much they would want to be in my shoes. Sure. And sort of charged me with that extra bit of responsibility as I sang the anthem. But watching um, the World Cup quarterfinal in 1999 in Cardiff, we were playing against um, against the Welsh. And Jean-Pierre was in the crowd. And you could see him. You can pick him a mile yeah, away yeah, with some hair, other yeah. French barbarian folk. And uh, they had their French barbarian blazers on. And – I saw him up there in the crowd and during the anthem, I, I sang the anthem wow. l- looking at him and like, I'm not sure he sang the, the national anthem, but he could see that I was looking at him and you know, acknowledged and you know, I think I just nodded or acknowledged back. But you know, it, was a, it was a special moment. He's a, he's a great guy and a really interesting guy on so many different levels. And to, to think if you can admire someone for something, it's that they, they have a great passion, they follow their their, their passion and they exhaust their passion. Mm. And, and he did that with rugby and he's in the process of doing that with art. What a, what a great relationship. I think also I'm, I'm friends with a, a sculptor in, in Sydney who's had a, quite an impact on me where he talks about if you make something that's got inner beauty and truth, it lasts forever. Mm. Yeah, and, and people's different interpretations of it, that doesn't matter. If, it, if it's true and real and so much in modern life is superficial, vacuous bollocks. That piece that you've got, it was made by him. Mm. It, I mean, it's real. It's not, it's not a marketing exercise. It's not for show. And yeah. so when you look at that, you, I mean, it's just, I think there's something really beautiful and meaningful in, in an object that's, that's got that authenticity about it. Yeah, look, I agree. And I remember speaking with Ken Doan mm. um, when I interviewed him for the, the, um, the business leader's book. And he, he was talking about art and he said, the end of the day, you paint something, and you might be it might have an exhibition, and hundred people might walk past it and think it's the biggest load of old crap they've ever seen. Yeah, but then one person will walk past and look at it, and it'll stop them. They may not buy it, but you can see it's grabbed them, and they're looking at they're taking something out of it. He said, "As an artist, I'm successful." Yes. Yeah, and and that means, and it's interesting to look at that because, in some people's language, he's had a hundred failures for one success. But not in his language. You know, he's he, he's he's had that one success, and that resilience. I think the artists can be you know, soft and gentle personalities in some respects, and deep and introspective. But they've got to have a bravery to yep. do what they do because it is confronting when you put your work out there, whether it be something you write or 
um, a song you sing or or something you've painted or created and uh, to put it out there for people to criticize and think it's a, a load of old crap I, I think you know, business people and others can need to understand how to harden up a little bit sometimes sure. and not take things as personally all the time. There's a quote from Sean Penn. I'm not saying he's a philosopher, but the, the actor Sean Penn, it, it's uh, from a long interview he gave for Rolling Stone. And it was, if you do what I do, you've got to constantly live with the flat on your face thing. And you go, isn't that brilliant? You go, so I will. There's no way, a bit like being an international sports person, but there is no way I'm going to have a career and not do something where I'm going to fall flat on my face. Yeah, yeah, So yeah. the only way I can not have the flat on my face is just sit in my bedroom and never leave it. Mm. So and that's actually quite liberating. You go, so there will be, you know, times when I do a painting or a show or write a book and people go, that's crap. And especially if you're putting yourself in it. It's mm. one thing if you're writing romantic, you know, fiction... And people say, well, that book was crap, John. You go, well, it was right. But if it's about you, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you go, I'm saying, actually, the book was crap and you're crap. You <laughs> yeah, know, while yeah. I'm at it, can I just tell you what I think about you? Yeah. So to actually just, you know, live with passion and authenticity and, and go, and yeah, you can't please all the people all the time and you're not always going to be the World Cup champion and it makes it better when you are, that, that you, you aren't always. Mm. And which uh, brings me to your, um, your possession, which I can't wait to hear about. And, and like most of the people that come on the five of my life is you've chosen something that has no monetary value. So, so I'm, I'm really glad that people don't come on and say my Ferrari or my Aston Martin <laughs> or my yacht. They say the picture of my granny yeah. wearing a wallaby shirt. Yeah. So, so tell, tell me about it. So my, my grandmother, she's Italian and look, she, she passed away in 2000, but, um, she came to Australia when she was 21 years old in 1924 and was a huge influence on my life. She, Mum and dad got married uh, and then they set up their own house. Within six months, my grandmother and grandfather had moved in with them. Right. So dad yeah, had all his married life with, with his, his parents-in-law living in the house. But, <laughs> you know, he was a very patient guy, <laughs> um, but they were great people. Yeah. And Nono and Nono, as we, as we called them, but uh, Nono passed away when I was, um, he was about 10 or plus years older than my grandmother. And he was in Australia and went back to find a wife. Right. Um, basically because he couldn't find a wife in Australia. So I yeah. went back, picked up my grandmother. You know, within three weeks they're married. Within six weeks she's on a boat on the way to Australia. Right. So she was 21 years of age in 1924. She died a week short of her 97th birthday, went back to Italy once in all that time. Wow. And basically lived with us from before I was born. So we were very so close. in the it. same house as you? Mm. Wow, okay. Yeah. And so we had a very close relationship. It was... It was almost like having two mums in, sure. you know, to a large uh, degree, and like I was incredibly fortunate that, yeah. you know, to have such you know love in the house, yeah. and um, and you know she had a great work ethic, uh, yeah, she had a great soul, and um, and she had a great sense of humour a lot of the time as well, and I, I would often try, you know, just and she was less than five foot tall, right, which is in stark contrast to myself, but I would often try to um, get her to put on one of, one of my wallaby jerseys. I wanted to get a photo and send it to a couple of people and she refused to. She never would. Right. She, she actually, she loved the fact I was playing for Australia. Um, she wouldn't have cared in what it was. Yeah. She had no idea what rugby was. I don't think she ever watched a game. <laughs> she, she couldn't watch games. <laughs> you know, she'd get too nervous. When are you going to get um, a proper job, John? Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. <laughs> and, uh, and, and in her eyes, the only proper job was being a doctor as well right. yeah. or a lawyer. You know, the, maybe those, those two traditional jobs. But, um, yeah, so 
I never got to put this jersey on, but then one Sunday morning she came home from mass and whatever reason I said, no, no, I'm, I'm going to, you know, I want, I want you to put the jersey on. And she said, no, 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 no. And she, I said, no, no, I do. And, and for whatever reason, this one day right. was the only time she ever weakened. And so I thought, I'm going to keep going here. So I got the jersey on her. You know, she was doing her hair or getting it all right. I got the jersey on her. I got my shorts on her and the jersey's <laughs> coming through the bottom of the shorts and I got my socks on her. And so I got her out in the front yard. I thought, I'm not going to miss this opportunity. And in those days, you had to then find a camera and have film on yep. it. And uh, there's no such thing as camera in your phone. And... Uh, Got her out into the front yard and took a series of photos, including some where she's holding a footy, others where she's holding a forex. Oh, gorgeous! Yeah, who, who were the sponsors gorgeous. at the time? It was, yeah. So it, uh, yeah, it's a it's a series of photos that sits on my desk at home. And, oh, right. Uh, so, so one of those framed ones. Yeah, yeah. And look, I mean, she met a lot of a lot of my teammates over the years, and everyone loved her. And she she died the week before we played South Africa in 2000. And it was probably, and now Australia and South Africa play for the Mandela Plate. I think it was mm. the first time that was played for in a test in Melbourne. And she died early early in the week, so I uh, didn't go down straight away and um, you know, stayed up for a couple of days just with the family and then went down. And, and I remember going out to play that game and... And then I saw before the game a lot of my teammates, all my teammates were putting the Aww. black armbands on. Yeah. And uh, George Gregan was the vice captain. He said, mate, this is for Nonna. And look, I mean, in in all the time that I was playing, I'd say that would have been one of the most emotional moments for me in a Wallaby jersey. And it's, you know, just how your teammates, you know, she was so important. It was it was her time, like 90, yeah. almost 97. Yeah. Yeah, you don't... You're sad, but you're really. It's more about the celebration of her mm. life. But but it's this momentous occasion of someone really important to you moving on, passing away, and the acknowledgement of that from my teammates was something I'll never forget. What a, what a lovely story. When I look around my house at the difference in how people of our generation treat photos and framed photos than to our kids, so so they're. You know, I look, look back to my parents where certain photos make it into the silver frame yeah, and then they become hugely disproportionate in your view of your great-grandfather that you never met because the one photo that you've seen of him is him wearing a naval uniform. Yeah. Right, right, yeah. But, but that, that, that might have no genuine representation of his character, but you go, but well, that's what yeah. I see every day of my 18 years that I'm growing up and mm. whatever else. So I, I quite like the process of honouring an image so, so I, I think, personally, frames are going to come back in. Mm. I don't want 6,000 photos on my mm. bloody iPhone. I want a few that really mean... I've got a picture of my wife and my kids at a certain time where they were all at school, and it's just a snapshot in time. And you go, frame it. And, and mate, I have to say... I mean, I wish that I could talk to you for, you know, three more hours. You are a dead-set inspiration. You, you really are, not just on the sporting field, but just in life generally, um, you have one more question that you have to answer, which is, who should I get on Five My Life next? Oh, it's very interesting. I hadn't, hadn't, uh, hadn't thought about that. Um, I mean, if you, if you could go international. Yes, de- like, most definitely. Like, I reckon that getting someone like a, a Paul Simon yep. or a, uh, a Michael Stipe from Leeds okay. Singer of REM, I, I'd, I'd love to... You know, really understand how you write a song. Yeah. You know, what I, I know, it, 
I know it's different. Like sometimes the lyrics will come, sometimes the music comes, sometimes they come at the same time. Yeah, but but understanding that how and say in Paul Simon's case, how a guy who was tw- like probably early twenties for a, a lot of those great songs that he wrote, yeah, how he could have so much insight into human nature at such a young age, and and where it's come from, and you know where it's uh, you know whether. He's followed a lot of his own thoughts and ideas all his life. John Eels, thank you so much for coming on to Five of My Life. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Nigel. The Five of My Life was presented by me, Nigel Marsh. Producer, Alex Mitchell. Sound production and theme music by Darcy Thompson and Matt Nicholish. 